Good morning. I'm Dan, one of the pastors here at the church. And I know that always on any given gathering like this, uh, some of you are wandering in for the very first time. And uh, we just want to catch up on what we've been talking about over these last couple of weeks. We're in a series uh, during the weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter, uh, a series we're calling At the Table. And we're looking at the stories that we find in the New Testament of times when Jesus sat down at a table with somebody. And we're paying attention to what that was all about. What was he doing there? Uh, how did he act? What did he say? Um, what was the impact on the lives of people at the table? Because we're trying to get some insight and wisdom from that so that we can take those principles and practices to the tables of our lives. Uh, all of the various places that we inhabit during the course of a given week. How can we live more creatively in those particular places? Well, this morning we're on part three of that story, and I want to invite you to listen with me to uh, the story of Jesus at the table of Zacchaeus, Z-A-C-C-H-E-U-S, Zacchaeus. It's not a name that, um, that people are using for their children so much anymore, but uh, if you're looking for a good idea, think about this one. Listen to what God's word says as I read from the 19th chapter of the gospel according to Luke. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And that, that should create a little curiosity because we don't normally think of IRS agents as wealthy people. Uh, they're usually, it feels like they're sometimes going after wealthy people. But uh, what's going on here, we'll learn about that in just a moment. Uh, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And when I was a little boy at Sunday school, I learned a song about uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. So he, he, that's the short part, I guess, the, in this story. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, for I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the Son of Man, that was the title Jesus used for himself. He was drawing on an image from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel about the prophesied one that would come from God to change everything. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to use your imagination with me today. 
and to picture that you've gotten an invitation from the new neighbors that just moved in next door. And they've invited you over to their house for a meal. And you think, well, this would be good to do. So you come over, you have a few pleasantries exchanged, you sit down at the family table with these folks and you start a conversation. And you look across the table and you say, so, so Zach, great to have you guys in the neighborhood. So excited, we've been excited about learning about you, you two. Uh, Zach, tell me, what, you know, what do you do for a living? And, and Zach says, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a balloon operator. I know it's kind of a, not a very usual profession, but I'm, I've been for quite a while a balloon operator. And you say, oh, that's fantastic, you know? Uh, Amy and I, we were just thinking, we've talked for a long time, but one of these days we ought to go up in one of those hot air balloon rides. Maybe, maybe we could go with your company. Where, where's your company based? And he says, oh, no, uh, I don't think you understand. I'm, I'm not that kind of a balloon operator. No, I, I, I operate, um, I, I have this control panel, and I, and I operate these really super high-altitude white balloons that, that can take photographs, incredibly accurate photographs of strategic American assets for another country. And you're like, you don't even know what to say. Your just jaw drops, it's an extremely awkward moment, and your, your, your spouse chimes in uh, and sort of saves the, the, the moment and, and says to the, to the, to the spouse of, of Zach, so, so, Sue, tell us about yourself. Do you work inside or outside the home? And she says, well, I, you know, I have a job that I can work pretty much from home. Um, what do you do? Well, um, I sell things that people need at a really high markup. And I, and I get them to pay way more than things are actually worth because I know they have to have those things. Like, I made a killing during COVID. I mean, I sold masks at an incredibly inflated rate. In fact, if you notice that nice Tesla out there next to your Prius, we got that car because this has been a really successful couple of years for me. People had to have masks. So what are you thinking right now? What are you feeling about your new neighbors? Right? Collaborating with a foreign power, you know, Ripping people off when they're already under pressure. Um, this, is a, this, is not a, this is a dirty bunch of people in some respects, right? Now, if you can project yourself inside of that, you've got the beginning of a handle on what people in the first century uh, in the Middle East felt about tax collectors. Um, how they viewed the identity and behavior of tax collectors. Um, somebody got a job in those days. It's, it's different than a, your, your IRS agent kind of idea. No offense if any of you are IRS agents. We're thrilled that you're in the circle here. The, in, fact, in fact, be kind to us, please. Uh, but but um, in those days, you, you got the job as a tax collector by actually bidding for it you bought a, a tax collection franchise from the Roman government. The, I would say the hated Roman government. And the Roman government was not stupid. Um, what they understood was that they would be far more successful in collecting the maximum amount of taxes if they employed local people to do it. Because local people would know actually what particular households were probably worth. 
They wouldn't be fooled by the fact they look like humble farmers when in actuality they've stored up a lot and should be taxed even more. And so they would sell the contract to collect taxes to people. And if you bought one of those contracts, you essentially agreed to provide a certain revenue stream at a certain level uh, based on how Rome projected the capacity of your district. And then anything else you could charge over that amount, you kept for yourself. You, you, whatever you could get away with charging in taxation, you could then you know, take whatever needed to go to Rome, to Rome and then you could line your pockets for the rest of it. It was a way to get extremely, extremely wealthy. And, uh, and, and like the fantasy neighbors that I had you imagine a minute ago, um, truthfully, tax collectors were regarded by the local people as traitors and scam artists, and, and not the kind of people you wanted to have over to your table or, or to go to their table. In fact, if you think about it, would you want your kids to be taking moral cues and vocational cues from tax collectors? No. Would, would you want your friends to see you hanging around with these people? No. Would you want to be touching the same pile of food at the table with, with some of these people? No, because tax collectors were seen and probably were dirty, rotten scoundrels in many cases, right? So whatever status a, a Jewish person had had in life prior to becoming a tax collector, they forfeited when they took the job. They, they, they took the financial benefit over all of the social benefits um, that they might have had before. And they would, would be thought of as no longer a part of the Jewish family. And, you know, family was big in the ancient times. Before all the social safety nets and the, the level of affluence that we uh, can sometimes take for granted in our day, it, it was your family connections that were like everything to, to help you in times of, of struggle, um, but some people bet on the money above the value of the relationships. Um, and, and so you can guarantee that nobody reputable would seek out the company of a tax collector, much less sit at their lunch table. That's what makes the story that we're about to go into pretty interesting, uh, maybe even puzzling at times. Uh, so the first verse of Luke 19 says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, this is not puzzling. This is, this, this is, is a helpful image. Um, we know from the wider context of the rest of Luke's gospel where Jesus was going. He was going to Jerusalem. And, in, in, and he had come from the northern part of Israel, known as Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee was. And, and one of the most uh, favored routes for going to Jerusalem from the north, from the Galilee area, was to go down to the Jordan River along the flat, relatively flat ground of the riverbed and just walk along the edge of that all the way south till you got to the city of Jericho. Then you'd turn right and you'd head west and you'd follow the switchback roads. You'd go through the city and then up through the switchback roads into the mountains where the holy city of Jerusalem was. So apparently Jesus is doing this. This is what we're told when he enters Jericho and is passing through. If you did this, you would, and turned into Jericho, you, you would, your heart would kind of leap a little bit because Jericho was a very cool place in ancient times. If Jerusalem was the religious center of Israel, Jericho was the commercial and financial center of Jericho. Uh, 
And so it was a place uh, where there was a lot of action. There was shopping there. There was a very high level of commerce. Uh, there, was, there was beautiful architecture. Some of it is still be being dug up. Um, there, there were all kinds of chances for you to, to interact with vendors. You might not find any place else in the land. Uh, King Herod, uh, the great region of that time, had a winter palace near there. You never know what celebrities you might see moving through the area. So you'd go through Jericho with some excitement, right? It was a place of great influence. Um, and if you think about it, given the character of the city, could you imagine a more lucrative place to be the tax collector than that city? I mean, that was a really good tax collection franchise to have won. And so we read in the text, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He'd worked his way up through the ranks. He was the, the number one guy in the whole district. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Yeah, I bet he was wealthy. Um, here, however, is where the story starts to get a little puzzling. Because the next verse says, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, why does a guy who's really got massive wealth, uh, who's more or less forsaken the community and the cult of Judaism by making the economic choice and vocational choice he did, why does he want to see Jesus? Why does he have an interest in some rabbi from the hick town of Nazareth up, up in the north? I, I, my, my guess is because of a backstory that we're just not g given access to. It has been my experience, however, that, that for all of the, the, the pleasantries that come with wealth, a lot of times when you have made it to the pinnacle of financial success, you still find yourself yearning. In fact, you sometimes find yourself disappointed because you thought, you know, life would be much more chill, much more pleasant, uh, peaceful in this time. And you find yourself still racked with all kinds of, of anxieties, of concern about uh, maintaining all of this, this status. So you're worrying about your family members and what's going on with them. Your, your health may be compromised. No matter how, you can't buy perfect health. You know, there's, you can get to the, a place like Zacchaeus and still have some pretty unmet needs and wants. And I think sometimes that in the process of chasing success, at, uh, almost in any field, there is this tendency very often to, to leave other people behind. You begin to lose some of the relationships because you're charging so hard towards the goal that you can get isolated. And you can begin to think, gosh, I need, you get to a point and you go, I, I need some companionship here. And now you're not even sure where to go for that. And, and you're thinking, Gosh, if people fully knew me as I really am, who, who would actually want to be my, my companion? And it's at times like this that, that we start to reevaluate our values. We start to think about possibly restructuring our, our, our priorities or patterns. We're not always sure how we would make those things stick without help. <laughs> So maybe we think about a therapist at this time of our life, or a coach. Um, so maybe, maybe this was the backstory for Zacchaeus. I, I, I don't know. 
Uh, maybe, maybe he'd heard stories about other people that Jesus had helped along the way. Maybe he was doubtful about religion in general. He didn't like the Pharisees. Maybe we could understand why. Uh, but he thought maybe this Jesus, he seems to have this, this spirit, this life with God that's, that's, that's attractive to me. Again, we, we, we know there had to be a backstory, <laughs> even though we don't know exactly what it was. Just like there was a backstory to me coming to Christ, or maybe to you following Jesus, or we, stories like the ones we hear all the time every week on our staff of people as they've, they share what it was that ultimately brought them into the life of Christ church. Because nothing but a deep, deep kind of yearning could possibly explain what Zacchaeus does next. Are you interested in knowing what he does next? Text says, verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now, this is a really incredible detail because it's an indicator of the strength of the curiosity and longing that is now working inside of this man. If you're a person who everyone will recognize and everyone will hate, do you go out alone in a crowd? <laughs> do you go out in the mob? I think not. I think not without bodyguards. Uh, I think this is an, a very curious thing. And if you're a wee little man, as the children's song says, who's short, somebody who can easily be overpowered, beaten up, mugged, or a whole lot worse, do, do, do you go out that way into the crowd? Um, do, you, do you subject your, yourself to maybe being killed by going out alone in the crowd? And yet Zacchaeus goes out. He goes out. He's, he's kind of like the, there, there's a story in another part of Luke's gospel in which there's this hemorrhaging woman, this woman that's had this terrible blood condition and she's, and, and she's tried doctors and she can never find any help and she goes out uh, at personal risk to her own safety and health and she fights her way through the crowd and, and she just wants to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus because she thinks if I touch him, if I just touch his cloak, maybe God's grace will come to me. It's an incredible story. She's like the, the kid maybe you've seen on the 4th of July and they're kind of working their way through the legs of the, of the, of the adults and they're just trying to get a better position. They run out ahead to get, a, they get the perfect spot in the parade route because they want to be able to see clearly a glimpse of their, of their sports idol going by on the July 4th float just to catch a glimpse of that person. This is something I think of the intensity and the curiosity and the commitment that we're seeing in, in Zacchaeus. Something deep, something genuine is driving this guy. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. I'm gonna guess that some of us here today have got something very deep and very genuine going on in our lives. And we've gone to some serious lengths, actually, to show up here today when we could have been elsewhere. And we're praying that Jesus will come our way. And I think he is.
I think he's coming our way. Back in the early 20th century, there was a woman by the name of Louisa Fletcher who got married. And Louisa married somebody that was a notable figure of that time. His name was Booth Tarkington. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He was truly the most famous author in the US at that moment in a day predating TV. So he, you know, where books were bigger. <laughs> and, and so he was a really significant figure. The downside of this marriage, as Louisa was soon to find out, was that Booth Tarkington was also a, a pretty hardcore al alcoholic. And the relationship between them became very, very rough. And it ended in divorce. Uh, Louisa uh, went through the agony of that whole uh, process of, of extricating their lives together. She went on, she eventually met somebody else, she got married, and, and she um, had a baby in this marriage. And the baby was a, a, a beautiful little girl. And the little girl grew up and, and hit adolescent years and then mental illness uh, began to appear. Schizoph schizophrenia occurred. And um, Louisa lost this daughter at age 16. It was a devastating, devastating time. In the process of grieving and, and coming to terms with the struggles in her life, the good choices, the bad choices, the the stuff that just happened. Um, Louisa finds it helpful to journal. And, and, and as she's writing, she, she starts to, to put into poetic terms some of her aspirations and her feelings. And, and one of the things she writes during this period of time is, is a poem, six stanzas long, that I want to just share a couple of stanzas with because I... It's something I found, find so beautiful and so true to some of the hungers that I've experienced in my life at times. She says, I wish that there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all of our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never put on again. I wish we could come on it all unaware like the hunter who finds a lost trail. And I wish that the one whom our blindness had done the greatest injustice of all could be at the gates like an old friend that waits for the comrade he's gladdest to hail. I wish that there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again. Maybe that's what was going on for Zacchaeus. Maybe that's what's going on for him. Maybe after all of his mistakes and all his heart, heartaches and his poor selfish grief, he he's daring to dream that somehow God might be at the gate like the old friend that waits for the one who he's glad to hail. It's an outrageous hope, given all that Zacchaeus has done, that God might still love him and care for him, except for the fact that Zacchaeus bet right. <laughs> he bet right. And God was coming his way.
as we saw in the first week of the series that we had when we looked at the table at the wedding in Cana, the God that Jesus shows us is someone who does outrageous things of, to, to extend good to people, um, even when they may not have deserved it. Uh, he, he, in that particular story, you may remember, he, Jesus pours out 180 gallons of the finest red grace that the wedding service might go on. Um, as we learned in, in week two, last week, the, the God that Jesus shows us, uh, he prizes relationships over rules. And, and he wants, actually, to sit with people who are sick. He actually prefers their company to those who are perfectly well and need no assistance. Jesus doesn't mean that he doesn't care for those people. More about that in a moment. But Jesus is especially interested in those who are sick and need a doctor. And, and we learned about that at the table at Matthew's house last week. So the gospel says when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, he looked up into the sycamore tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come on down. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Like an old friend who waits at the gate. Now, when I first read this and really sat with this, I, I, I had a slight disconnect because I grew, up, I grew up in a political family. I grew up around campaigns. And I, I saw my dad work crowds my whole uh, young life. Um, I, I worked in lots of other campaigns and saw lots of other politicians, uh, you know, as they, as they did their thing. And what politicians do is, is their goal is to touch the most number of people they can. As many shoulders, as many handshakes, as many baby kisses, as many connections as they can possibly make to increase their name recognition, to increase the likelihood that people will go to the polls. Jesus is on a campaign of sorts. He is trying to build a movement that could alter human civilization. He is headed towards Jerusalem. He's now in the midst of Jericho, an incredible uh, area of influence. There, there could have been all kinds of people he could have fundraised with, he could have networked with, if he was thinking about life like somebody in politics might think about life. And yet, in the middle of the campaign tour, he stops and addresses the one person who association with could do him no good. Think about it. You know, think about what people felt about tax collectors. You think this is going to help Jesus' reputation? No, it's not going to. Uh, and spending time with this guy is going to be really inefficient. And so this is what makes Jesus amazing to me. And here, here's the major insight of this passage and of week three in our series. So if you haven't been been uh, tuned in. Pay attention, please, to this part. The God Jesus shows us is especially interested in people ready to make a turn. He's especially interested in people ready to make a turn. Jesus loves everybody. 
For God so loved the world, right? Jesus loves everybody. He, as the advertising campaign that's out there right now says, he gets us. He gets us. He cares about all of us. He, he, he cared for everybody in that Jericho crowd, I bet. They all mattered to him, like, like all of us matter to God. But what this Bible story tells us is that the people who get his particular focus, the people he keys in on that make him want to go and sit at the table with them are the people who are ready to change, who, 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 who are ready to make a shift in their priorities, to alter their behaviors, to, to become what they're made to be. And I want to urge you to notice that what the Bible is giving us here is a picture of two very different ways of looking at people. I want you to notice the difference between the directional focus of the crowd and the directional focus of the Christ, the Savior. Because they're, they're radically different focuses. Um, first, note the direction the crowd is looking. I quote them. All the people saw this, saw Jesus and Zacchaeus going off, and began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Of a sinner. And Sue Ann talked with us last week, and Aaron and Charlie, about what that, that word sinner was laden with. It wasn't good association. He's gone to do that, because in the Middle East, to sit down with somebody and share a meal was a serious act of 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 commitment, of community, of, of trust. It was a way of saying, hey, you're family to me, right? You're, 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 you matter to me. And the fact that Jesus, who's a publicly recognized holy man, has decided to go dine in the home of Zacchaeus, who is a dirty man, holy, dirty. This is a staggering thing to the crowd. They just can't get it. Why? Why can't they get it? Because of Zacchaeus' past. Because of his past. Here's a, tr- here's, a, here's a simple truth. I think this one translates to our time too. The crowd assesses people on the basis of their past. They assess the, the worth of engaging with somebody on the basis of their past. They slot and sort and sift and set people on the basis of who they have been. There's no escaping your history with the crowd. There really is not. They'll always bring it up. You said, you did, you were, you slapped. Right? This is the way it is in our world. Today's searchable digital environment makes it worse than ever. You can't escape your past. They've got video on it, right? This isn't how it is with Jesus. Unlike the crowd, the Christ is concerned directionally about the future. About the future. He is dramatically less interested in, in who you have been than who you want to be. He, he feels, of course, seriously the gravity of sin and things that have done, we've done in our past. He feels that profoundly. He went to the cross to pay the price for that. But his grace is sufficient. It's sufficient 
to overcome what we've done and what we've been and to guide us into a different kind of future. I, ha- I had, a, I had a, a, a surprise text this week. I was um, working in my office and bing, the text goes off and I look and, and the text just says, 18 years. And then the text starts to cascade and there's more information coming. 18 years ago, um, a, a friend of mine uh, who uh, I, ha- I still love, don't see him much anymore, but I, I still love, um, came face to face with a pretty sordid past for him and a set of patterns in his life. And, and, and the amount, fundamentally, it was, a, it was a sex and porn addiction. And it had, and had really, it had really wrecked uh, his life and, and, and key relationships. And, um, and it, was just a, it was just agony. And when, it, when that got discovered, uh, obviously it threw him into a total whirlpool of agony about, about it. But um, this guy made the decision that this could become a, a turning point for him. And, and he committed himself he got into recovery, you know, he, he got counseling, he, he joined a group, uh, and over the past 18 years, he has become a lifeline for so many other guys who have struggled with this same problem and helped to show them the possibility of a different future. And he was just texting me, because I had been there 18 years ago when he made the turn and he wanted to celebrate how far he had traveled. Um, You know, the Old Testament law stipulated that if you did wrong, you ought to to not just recognize that you had done wrong, you you should repent of it. Um, that word repentance is sort of carries all kinds of negative associations in our day, but it, it, it didn't actually originally. It was like, once you recognized that this wasn't working, this wasn't helpful, you needed to go in a new direction. There's where hope, it was about leaving the past and going to the future. That's what repentance was, was about. And, and, and we actually um, see sort of a pattern in the way the ancient Israelites thought about this. They, they, they said, you know, we need, we need to, uh, first of all, recognize what we've done. I would say a lot of people, we do recognize we've got sin as an issue in our lives. Lots of people tally sins in a sense. Yeah, I've got a sharp tongue. Yeah, I sometimes drink too much. Yeah, I admit I can be selfish sometimes or, or spend money selfishly. Or, or it's true, I, I do tend to hold on to grudges. People tally. That, that's what sometimes look, is held out as vulnerability today. Yeah, I'm not perfect. But fewer people actually turn from those behaviors. It's one thing to tally. It's a different thing to turn. Um, it's one thing to recognize you've done wrong and, and that your failure represents not just issues with other people or within yourself, but actually an act of unfaithfulness to God. The, the Hebrews were, were really different from other cultures because they saw sin as, as, an, as hurtful to God's heart first. 
That's why King David, when he messed up with Bathsheba, um, his, his prayer in Psalm 51 is, against thee only have I sinned. He feels like the, the significance of what he's done to God's heart has to be named first. So, so recognizing and confessing that I've done wrong, that it's unfaithful to God, is one act. It's another thing to start saying, I'm really sorry for this. I, wanna, I really want to say out loud how sorry I am for what I've done. And it's another level beyond that, higher, to start wanting to make practical amends for what I have done wrong. Uh, however, I've, I've committed a debt or a transgression. I want to try and make it better. I want to fix it. And then it's the absolute height of transformation when you start establishing a new pattern of doing abundant good where there had been before this pattern of doing an awful wrong. And I'm sorry for this side of the room. I keep associating you guys with the awful wrong. I don't, not, don't, don't mean that. Um, what makes the Judeo-Christian ethic uh, unusual and transformative is that it calls for all four of those steps I just gave you. Um, not just tallying, but turning, not just recognizing, but repenting. It, it, back in the book of Numbers, which not a lot of us use for devotional reading, I might add, but in the book of Numbers, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, if you do something wrong to another person, you have been unfaithful to the Lord. See how they're putting it instantly in that larger frame. Sin is a problem that hurts the heart of God uh, as well as other people. That's step one. Recognize that this act, it's, it's not good at the cosmic level as well as the personal level. And then the text goes on. When you realize your guilt, you must confess your sin. Name it. Maybe bring some other people in on, on it with you and say, help me with this. That's step two. And then it says, pay in full for what you did wrong. Make amends. That's step three. And then this is the, 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 the clinker. Add one-fifth to it and give it to the person who was wronged. Step four. I mean, go overboard in trying to make the thing right. That was the Old Testament teaching. Uh, St. Paul says, in his writings, godly sorrow brings repentance. We don't just cry, we change, and we really move towards a full change. This is what is so unbelievable about this story. <laughs> I don't know if you caught the detail when I read it earlier in terms of what Zacchaeus here does. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And here's the key part. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back one-fifth of the amount. What does he say? Four times. Four times. Jewish law says, if you're really, really sorry, a faithful act of repentance might move you to restore one-fifth of what had been taken. Zacchaeus pledges, I will do 20 times that. That's how sorry he is. That's how committed he is to, to, to being on a new road. Uh, I think God loves it when we desperately and wildly try to fix the things that have been broken and pour ourselves hard into, into that restoration of the relationship. I, I think God loves it. Uh, he doesn't require us to do that with him in order to be accepted. 
We, you know, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He did what we couldn't do for ourselves. Uh, we couldn't even the scales with God, with our sin, but he poured out his, his body and blood on the cross that we might be forgiven nonetheless. But I do think he loves it when out of an, a response of gratitude, we then start treating other people this way. We start uh, going overboard in terms of trying to make things right again. And when Jesus sees Zacchaeus uh, welling up with this kind of generosity and, and, and repentance and pledging himself in this extravagant way, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus wasn't a son of Abraham. He had been disqualified from that. The minute he took that tax contract, he, he had sold out the children of Abraham. He, he, he was not fit to be anywhere around upstanding children of Israel. And Jesus says, in effect, I get that. I know that by his past behavior, he's lost it. He's, he's blown it. But I tell you today that because of the heart he has demonstrated for the future, I'm putting him back in the family. I'm calling him a son of Abraham again. For the son of man, me, says Jesus, I came to seek and to save the lost. So here are the takeaways, and then you can go home. Just a couple of quickies. First, remember, God is more interested, more interested in your future than your past. Don't forget that. Jesus shows that to us clearly. Two, the story of Zacchaeus demonstrates that Jesus isn't terribly impressed when you simply recognize you have issues. What impresses them is when you make the turn and start moving towards a different way of being. That, now he wants to really come alongside you. He wants to be at the table with you and help you with that as you make that change, as you repent of your sin. Finally, third idea. Think about what that could mean for us or suggest to us about the way we interact with people at the tables of our lives also. Here's my encouragement. Look for Zacchaeus this week. Don't just pick on short people. <laughs> but look for a Zacchaeus. For, for somebody for whom maybe their success strategy has not been fully working in giving them what they're hungry for, uh, be attuned to people who are ready not just, to, not just to tally the sin, but to actually turn from it. Be a voice in their life who, like Jesus in this story, is less interested in kind of dwelling in what went wrong and more in sort of imagining what can go right now. Uh, be that Jesus-inspired presence with them. That Zacchaeus, by the way, that Zacchaeus might be one of your kids. And they feel such pain and guilt over what they've done in the past. They don't think they can escape it. You be the voice that says, it's about the future with God. 
That could be your spouse, could be a coworker, could be a friend. Be the person who brings God's grace to help people move from who they are to who they can be. In other words, let's go out and be people from the land of beginning again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.